Hi, I'm Dave, and you're listening to Making Problems to Solve, a podcast about curiosity, creativity, and problem solving. And today I am talking to Scott from Crabtree Creative. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right. I'm happy to be on here. I was uh, You reached out to me a couple of weeks ago, and I was pretty thrilled to be invited to be on the show. Oh, cool. All right. Well, um, I first um, you know, noticed your account um, because you were doing a replica of wesley treats uh all makers welcome sign and uh from there i noticed that uh your first thing that you describe yourself as on your profile is a problem solver so i definitely wanted to talk to you because i figured uh, that was the most important thing about you then i needed to find out more yeah, absolutely. The The problem-solving aspect of the gig is one of the most attractive elements of it, to, for, for me at least. Uh, some people, they love avoiding the problem as much as possible, but whenever I come up against a problem, um, my perspective of it is not, oh, no, not a problem. It's, okay, this is a problem. How are we going to get around this? What can we do to solve this and still get with the end result that we have in mind? So I think that's a healthy perspective to have on problem-solving. It's not... You're trying to create problems for yourself, although I think, in my opinion, there are there's a time and a place for that. But uh, problems going to come up. How are we going to deal with it? Is something that we all have to sort of address for ourselves. So I try to do it in the most healthy way I can. <laughs> and I usually like to try to go back in history and kind of figure out, like you know, where this came from. Do you have any uh, memories of uh, problem solving mentors or people in your uh, life growing up well i've always had a tendency to like a tendency towards uh, maker sort of personality i have pictures of myself as a little kid in my dad's garage uh, he had a wooden workbench with a, a a thick wooden block on the end and i just have distinct memories of just banging nails into that thing for, for no reason just just to be out in the garage <laughs> working with those tools having fun um and apparently, I don't have much memory of this, but my mom every once in a while mentions how whenever I was a little kid, I would make these very elaborate patterns across the living room floor out of paper plates. No recollection of this, but I guess I've always had a tendency towards making things and organizing things in such a way where you're making uh, sort of uh, the, the concept of gestalt, uh, something out of many parts. So it's always been a part of me, I think is the best way I can say that my relationship with making has been, but my dad, I, one thing I always appreciated about him is if I ever expressed an interest in something that he may or may not have known too much about, he always tried to put me in a position with people who did know and were able to help foster that curiosity and imagination. So that's something I always appreciated about my father and how he, how he helped raise me to be who I am today. That's good to hear. Um, and again, probably a very common <laughs> story to a lot of people I talk to. Um, can you, uh, do you have like a specific uh, instance you can remember where, you know, he get, you know, was able to get access to someone who had knowledge about something you wanted to learn? Uh, yeah. So one of my first jobs out of college, uh, I, I know that's a big time jump between there, but it's, it's a good story to bring up in relation to how I got to where I am now. So I'll start there. Uh, one of my first jobs out of college, I did an internship there, a uh, print shop, ProSign Studio in New Albany, Ohio at the time, now in Westerville. And my boss, we we had we we really meshed in regards to how we had an affinity towards the 
the signage industry and how we liked to make unique products and express ourselves in a creative manner, making really unique fabrications. And me and him would kind of put our heads together on certain projects that we would have as portfolio items there in the shop. And he introduced me to a lot of techniques and specific things for the signage industry, really old school techniques, like the proper method for gold leafing, things to know about doing hand lettering, squirrel hair brushes, mineral oils and all that. And uh, I mean, even even things like schmaltz, which is a crushed glass background, you, you really just don't see much of that sort of those fabrication techniques used much anymore. So I, w- I would say uh, Sean Alley, my boss there, he was he was a great first inspiration and a person to sort of bounce ideas off of and help develop me to where I am today. It sounds like a sounds like a great opportunity you had there to yeah. like learn some of, you know, more traditional techniques as they were doing hand painted signs there. They weren't doing hand painted signs there. It's one of those things you really don't find too many shops doing it today. The ones you do, it's more of uh, we're doing this artisanally. You're you're coming to us because you want a hand painted sign, not that this is the common practice anymore. Which right. you know you have digital printers these days. It makes sense that the industry sort of shifted, but I am glad that there are still shops and people who are interested in keeping the traditional sign making methodology alive and thriving. I follow a bunch of people who are you know doing hand painted hand lettering of signs and stuff. It probably came from my interest more just in like type design and hand lettering practices. And then there's very common similar techniques between, you know, sign painting and, you know, lettering and, you know, all that. How did you get into sign making? Sign making is, and I've always had a knack for making things as I've established, but I've also enjoyed the arts and it, sign making has been the way for me to be able to marry both fabrication techniques and um, artistry. So for me, it all really started with photography. From there, I learned Photoshop, which introduced me to Illustrator, working with Vector. And with Vector, I was able to do things with fabrication equipment like vinyl cutters, CNC machines, 3D printers. So that was kind of the, the quick synopsis of how I got specifically interested in digital fabrication. So starting from photography, but um, having a degree in graphic design has given me an understanding of color harmony, of hierarchy, of things that are very relevant to creating effective signs in regards to their transmission of information, if you will, making sure the message is clearly expressed uh, and having um, the, the, craftsmanship knowledge to be able to create a sign that's not going to fall apart or rot in an exterior environment that kind of thing there there's a very big distinction between doing interior signs and exterior signs especially once you start doing it professionally because then you start getting involved with permitting and the city and all it's it's a whole other thing it's it's very complicated very frustrating at times especially whenever the city officials don't have much experience and it makes the sign making process complicated but uh, doing doing the signs is just the best marrying of an artistry and a craftsmanship that i can think of for me at least and we kind of skipped over your more early history so it sounds like you were interested you know in putting things together making things and you know the artistic side of things um 
did you have a shop class in school? No, no, I did not have a shop class. I really wish that was still a thing. Uh, I'm, I'm very fascinated in the concept of the Bauhaus because of what it did for um, making, if you will. And that shop class is one thing I do wish would make a bit of a resurgence. But I, I always just made things in my own time. It wasn't something I sort of needed to to find it's just i always had this impulse that there's not much of a more succinct way i can describe it it's just part of me and did you have access to power tools and that kind of stuff at home you said your dad had a you know workbench at least in the garage yes yes i did have access to plenty of power tools uh, old plug-in drills and all that uh I, I remember doing my introduction to electronics involved one of those really old plug-in soldering gun style ones the really beefy looking things. It was very difficult to solder intricate circuits with that thing, but I made do with what I had, which I feel is a, another main characteristic of problem solving. Yeah, definitely. I can't believe, uh, yeah, those are not made uh, for electronics <laughs> no, at all. Um, what did you, what did you make with it? Do you remember? Oh, I don't even remember what I did with that. I think I tried to uh, make this lamp out of a cedar stump that, uh, the tree fell over in a big windstorm. So I tried to make a, like a nightstand lamp. And for some reason I tried to water or, or not water solder the, the, the wires together instead of using something like wire nuts. I, I don't know. I don't know where my head was at with that. But once I realized that tool was not suited for the job, I quickly pivoted to learn more effective ways of working with electronics. Have you uh, continued working with electronics? What kind of stuff uh, is more, have you done more recently? A lot of my signs incorporate one format or another of LED lighting. And that is still the case with my MakerSwap item coming up for MakerCamp this year. Um, it started out as simply just having elements of the sign that were illuminated, maybe a uh, ribbon around the back of the panel offset from the wall for a drop or an outer glow. So it started really simply like that. And it evolved to where I was coming up with these, what I called a, a technical base for my signs. And what that involved was routing out all of these raceways and channels to be able to uh, apply the LED strips and then have a faceplate, as I call it, to have the acrylic pieces and the lettering and everything to have the light properly go where it needs to, while also allowing all the wiring to be properly routed with heat diffusion and you know, not having to risk any sort of short circuits or anything like that. So that's how I try to incorporate electronics into my signs. And I'm hoping to further develop that by doing some more research into microcontrollers and sensors and coming up with unique ways of having wall-mounted art pieces, if you will. So I don't consider myself to be strictly a sign maker, although I do find myself doing that most frequently. I, what I describe my work as being in the field of design fabrication. So if you ask me what I, who I am, what I do, I am a design fabricator with a focus in science, if you will. And so if someone asks you, so what is design fabrication? What does that mean? Um, <laughs> how would you describe it to someone? I, I left the description intentionally vague because the types of projects I take on are very broad. They're, um, one of the most complicated signs I did was this wall for an upscale salon. It was, uh, I'm trying to think here, maybe 
25, 30 feet tall and maybe about just as wide. Honestly, probably closer to 40, 45 feet tall. It was a, it was a very tall um, wall and it was with these layers of ultra board, which is a, a type of half inch foam core like material, except it has polystyrene on the faces instead of paper. And those were layered in between the layers, there was LED lighting. So it was a pretty complicated installation. And that was probably my largest one. But on the opposite side of the spectrum, uh, I can do vehicle graphics, I've, I've wrapped vans. Uh, I met matter of fact, I'm working on a fleet of vehicles right now for an electrical company in Sunbury, Ohio. And so far, I've done about nine of their vans just with some simple um, spot graphics lettering, if you will. So it's a pretty broad spectrum of work that I do. And when you talk about design, do you do, do your clients come to you with designs for these items or do you work with them to develop the design as well as the fabrication? It's about 50-50. Uh, some of my clients, they they have, you know, established brands, they have designers, they'll send me graphics and it's not the most uh, exciting part of the business, but doing <laughs> signs involves making, you know, banners and yard signs, simple things like that. And I, I'm upfront with them. I tell them I, I sub those out to a trade only wholesale producer for those kind of items. But uh, whenever I do have a client come to me who has an idea, but doesn't necessarily have any artwork, I enjoy being able to leverage my experience as a graphic designer and the years of experience I have using the Adobe suite to create artwork to suit their needs and to solve those problems from a visual standpoint before I start addressing it from a fabrication standpoint. Does sound like, you know, the best, the most interesting combination of all your skills. Absolutely. <laughs> so you didn't have a shop class. Did you have get involved in art classes or any other type of creative stuff uh, growing up like that? My focus in as far as, you know, school and things like that was less about the arts that that was something I just had in me and I was always doing on the side. I never really considered that something that I acquired, but uh, a big focus of things I tried to learn on during school were, were things related to, to computers, technology, that kind of thing. And that helped me help give me the understanding I needed to be able to under understand the technologies of CNC and 3D printing, how they were, were, were related in relation to X, Y, and Z movements and how once you learn one, it's really easy to learn the other. So focusing on computer knowledge uh, has been a, a huge benefit to me. I, it's allowed me to uh, invest in good equipment, you know, good microphones, good, good cameras, good phones, computers, all that. And that's helped me be a good content producer, I, I like to think. And it's uh, it's come in handy being being adept with computers, but less so with art classes. It's just, like I said, it's always been part of me, I suppose. So was uh, kind of your formal art education more in college when you started studying graphic design? Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I, I did a four-year program in, in graphic design. From there, I was able to start really fundamental. They, they do uh, actual drawing classes. You have a good foundation in sketching, getting your ideas out of your head on paper, uh, specific classes in color theory, using your basic programs like the Adobe Suite. Um, the, the, the projects were pretty cool. Some of the most unique projects I did were the ones that involved actually printing out your artwork and 
presenting it in the real world, which is where I thought I really thrived. One specific project was a packaging project where I re- I created a package for Lind chocolates. And it was this five compartment piece where you could unwrap it. And uh, I definitely got an A plus on that project because I used the library's laminator to send through some gold vinyl, which melted the surface of the vinyl to make it look like hammered gold. So even whenever there was no business for me to be (laughs) involving lamination in this project, I tried to find ways of coming up with creative ways to utilize the materials that I had available to me. Oh, that's a great story. I really uh, (laughs) appreciate that. What, um, What drove you to go to school for graphic design? You know, what, what experience or influence did you have that, you know, pushed you in that direction? My introduction to graphic design started with my introduction in photography. Uh, I got my hands on a, a, an old T5i, an old Canon T5i DSLR with just, a, you know, your stock lens. And I eventually got the old Nifty 50, the, the 1.8 millimeter, really cheap um, prime lens. And I had mm-hmm. fun with that, did some light painting uh, long exposure stuff, landscape photography, portraiture, did some graduation photos for some of my friends, that kind of thing. And while I did not pursue that to a professional degree much further than high school, it was my introduction to the Adobe Suite, at which point I started doing graphics in high school for the homecoming games. I would make a poster and put them out in the school office, that kind of thing. So that was really my introduction in graphic design. And then one of my two best friends in high school, his dad owned a print shop in Knoxville, Tennessee, where I worked that summer after I graduated. And that was my first time using wide format printers, vinyl cutters, and seeing CNC machines in use. And that was a cool experience. And it really sort of reinforced my desire to learn more about graphic design. And it was just really cool to be able to see these people able to express themselves visually, but also be able to have something in the real world to show for it. Yeah. So I guess, uh, was that one of your first jobs working that print shop? That was, I, uh, that would, that would have been my, my first, you know, my first real job out of, out of school. All right. And back when you were learning Adobe and all that and trying to create graphics uh, for these small projects, were you totally self-taught? How did you, how did you figure out um, <laughs> how to get started in there? Um, if if anybody listening has ever tried to teach themselves Photoshop around the same time I was, then I became very familiar with the PSD Toots website, Photoshop tutorial website, um, trying to recreate all the projects they had on there, download all the working files and learn all the intricacies and the little dials and switches and doodads that Photoshop has available. And I found that so fascinating. There's just so many things you can do with this program, a, a really endless possibilities of what you can do. Um, even more so today with all the AI technologies that are coming out have made these tasks a lot easier. Um, but for, for better or worse, I should, I should add. Um, but the, the introduction through those websites helped me be able to teach myself uh, using lots of YouTube channels to, to learn about the Adobe Suite. I would definitely consider myself primarily self-taught. So whenever I did hit those college courses where we were learning 
the Adobe Suite, just to, you know, people starting from the ground up, uh, I was able to focus more on expressing the creativity rather than learning how to use the tool. And it sounds like you're, you know, there's a couple of different ways people <laughs> introduce themselves to these type of programs. Some people just learn the bare minimum and then they just get going. But it sounds like you kind of dug in and kind of tried to learn all the different uh, features and buttons and dials that are <laughs> available to you. I think that was definitely more characteristic of whenever I was first learning. Um, these days, there's a tool set that I like to use in Illustrator, and I pretty much stick with that with most of most of the work that I do. And I, I don't think that I don't view that as a bad thing. I think I was really experimenting around with the capabilities of the program. Once I learned what it could do, I started to do what I wanted to do. And I think that distinction is is big in understanding the people the difference between the people who who like to build the CNC, if you will, who like to build the CNC, refine it, be able to get exactly the results they want, and the people who want to have a CNC that works so that they can use it as a tool to do what they want with the tool. And I think there's a big distinction there, and uh, it's it's allowed me to express myself more visually rather than sort of be really down in the details and understanding specific g-code commands and all that so I, I view it more as a tool rather the the tool is a means to an end rather than the end bringing up this cnc so you you're not the kind of person who would build their own cnc and try to optimize it to the ultimate level i did put together my cnc i did build my own cnc um it was it, all the parts were sent to me. It's not like I did all research and, mm -hmm. you know, picked this specific stepper motor for this set of reasons. Uh, I I used a Zenbot CNC machine at my ProSign, the job I worked at right out of uh, college, and got familiar with it. And it was a pretty economical CNC machine. So whenever I bought the first one for for my own work, it was a four by four from that same company. Since I already had a fundamental understanding of how it works, how to set it up. And I do think there is a benefit in, at the very least, becoming familiar with your machine. Uh, a specific example I can give you is I remember seeing a while back on the 3D printing forums, somebody bought a pre-assembled Prusa printer. They were having issues with it, extrusion issues, what have you. And in their attempt to solve it, they unwittingly disassembled one of their stepper motors. They didn't realize that that was not one of the components that you really needed to disassemble to adjust the quality of your machine. So being able to build the machine yourself, understanding the components gives you a certain amount of understanding whenever problems do come up and how to address and solve them. Yeah. And I was looking back at your Instagram and I can see if I go back far enough, but back before it's mostly signs now, um, you do have, you have some paintings, drawing, different types of things you're exploring. Yeah, those were from some of my courses whenever I was in college. Uh, we had, we, we went through a lot of the traditional art types. So I had a class where I learned how to use acrylics, uh, I used uh, watercolors. I never fooled around with oils or charcoals, but we did do, you know, pencil sketches and all that understanding proportion, how to draw, how to scale things without needing to use grids and all that. 
So having a good understanding of traditional art, I found to be not necessarily the most useful, but it gave me a good core understanding of just artistry as a concept, different ways of expressing yourself, um, the different ways you need to think about how to express yourself based on the medium that you're using, which translates to if I want to use a CNC machine, I have to think about my file setup this way rather than another way if I just want these files to be viewed digitally. Because those are very two distinct mindsets you have to have whenever you're creating artwork. That makes uh, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, you have to know like who you're communicating to. Are you communicating this design to another person um, or are you communicating to a machine? <laughs> which yeah, case, exactly, the exactly. machine has to <laughs> look at it in a very certain way. And so the most recent project that you've been sharing, the uh, MakerSwap sign that you've been working on. So that one is you've been doing this using all of your things you've learned purely to make something uh, for yourself, not something for another customer. Have you done any any of that um, in other ways? I don't know if you have made other things that are more personal items. Absolutely. Those uh, those style signs in that form factor, things that are roughly two by two or one by four, things that are in a four by four envelope. Uh, I make a lot of those signs as a means of further developing my own skill set. And that's true, especially with this maker swap item. It is hands down the most complex sign I've made, both from a technical standpoint and a visual standpoint, in the sense that uh, I've had to come up with all sorts of solutions to unique issues that came up in the fabrication process. Uh, I'll give you a specific example. So on the original 12-foot-tall sign that Wesley Treat and Jimmy Dresta made, the lettering on the front, I'll focus on that, the word makers, that has an aluminum base with the letters painted on there and then neon letters elevated off the surface. So in my attempt to come up with as close to an accurate replica as I could, what I decided to do was to cut the letters out of the faceplate material and put a piece of white diffused acrylic in that opening. So the light comes through that uh, uh, that opening. Now, obviously, in a size this small, it would not really be easy to get neon to match the look of the original. And not to, to mention that I have no skill with neon whatsoever. <laughs> so the the way I visually solved that problem is I got a sheet of quarter inch translucent white acrylic and I cut a quarter inch wide profile of the letters. So if you look at the cross section, it's a quarter inch square. Before I did my profile cut on the CNC to cut those letters out, I used an eighth inch round over bit to round over the top right and the top left edge. So that if you were to look at that cross section again, it's almost like a tombstone in the sense that the, the top is a dome. Right. And once I did that, I used some Rust-Oleum triple glaze, just a clear gloss paint, spray paint. And it's achieved the look of neon without using, um, you know, L-wire or anything like that. And I think it was a great compromise to not being able to do actual neon and just throwing that detail out entirely. I think that one detail is the 
the 10%, that'll make the sign 110% of like my capabilities, if you will. Yeah, that's great. It sounds like uh, you've been able to combine a lot of your skills and just knowledge of different materials to Absolutely. Uh, you know, figure out how to replicate materials. the sign. <laughs> All right. It's definitely an impressive uh, undertaking there to try to recreate that sign. And it's, you know, you didn't do it in a wooden foot size. It's still a pretty substantial sign. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, like I said, it's going to be my most complex sign um, from the fabrication reasons I, I mentioned. But from a visual standpoint, uh, I'm trying to experiment more with unique paint effects. And I learned about modern masters paints from a sign maker who I consider to be one of the best in the U.S., hands down. Uh, if you've been on the Maker Stoop or uh, in Clubhouse with me and you've asked me about it, I've probably mentioned them in the past, but Synergy Signs, if you look them up on Instagram, the work that Jim does there is absolutely phenomenal. I, I mean, he, he's a sign maker. He, he runs a sign shop, but his work is nothing short of artistic, sculptural CNC work. And he, whenever I, I had the chance to go to a shop uh, a, a year or two ago, he has a wall that's about as long as my entire shop. That's just paints about six foot tall, two feet deep, all sorts of paint brands I'd never heard of. And he showed me the one specific one of the modern masters, which Wesley Tree also did use in his original uh, of the sign. Okay. Oh, yeah, so I think I've tried to pull as many details from the original construction as I could, but also taking into consideration that uh, certain things just couldn't be done at the, the size that I'm making the sign at. Um, the way I'm elevating those neon letters off of the surface of the sign is I'm heating up the head of a brad nail, melting it into the back of the letter, using some total bow UV curing resin to hold the nail in place. And then I dip the tip of those nails into some white paint and touch that onto the surface of the, the letter openings in the face plate and drill the holes through there. Right. And those letters will get mounted to the plate that way. So it's not just a surface mount letter. It, every detail about this sign is highly complex and uh it's 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 gonna be my my yeah it's it's i'm i'm very excited with how it looks at this point i'm about 95 percent done with it and every time i step back and look at it i just i have to chuckle to myself a little bit because of how everything just came together in a perfect way well that's that's really it's always the best feeling when you have a vision and then you're working through the project and as you go you can see it's actually coming together the way you imagined it. It's a, it's a great <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, how long do you think uh, you've worked on the sign? Oh, that's a great question. I have been working on that every single day uh, for the past month, at least an hour. And on, on days like the weekend, I probably put in six hours. I uh, Last night on Saturday, I was on, on the Maker Stoop Zoom call. And before I realized it, I had spent about three hours working on just those neon letters, trying to get those nail heads in the back of those letters in a very accurate manner. Because those letters, the center of the letter, of the stroke of the letter, meets right on the line of the profile and the faceplate. I know this is getting very complicated. Bear with me. <laughs> uh, so I have to melt the head of the nail 
just inset of the center line of that stroke. So there's a lot of precision required in order to not have me bending nails and make it look like I just sort of forced everything to go together. To make it look very intentional and accurately constructed has required a high attention to detail and focus <laughs> for sure. You've been working on it for about a month. Um, Absolutely. When, when did you, when did you have the idea that you wanted to make that? Um, honestly, the, the, the same day I got the idea was the same day I started ordering material for the project. Okay. Uh, I did start ordering materials that I knew I would be able to use for other projects. And in the meantime, I did reach out to Wesley Tree and Jimmy Duresta separately to ask for permission to use Wesley's design. And I just wanted to get Jimmy Duresta's approval as well. Because uh, as a graphic designer, it it's very common. You see people's artwork being stolen. And I didn't want to be that guy. So... Uh, I just wanted to make it clear that I did ask for permission to do this recreation and they were both very excited by the idea and very open to it. And I'm, I'm grateful to them for that. Yeah, that is, that is great. I know that, you know, both of them are pretty, you know, they'd be honored that someone's, uh, you know, took that inspiration and was it wanted to build it, you know, cause it's clearly you're not, you know, manufacturing these for sale. Yes. Yeah, so I made, sure to, make a, sure to specifically state that as well. I guess another question would be, did you have any other ideas for Maker Swap? Or was this the first thing you thought of? You this was the, the first thing that came to mind. And it was it was like a light bulb moment. It wasn't like I was debating between two ideas. It was once I had this idea, it was like, oh, this is what I'm doing for the Maker Swap this year. And uh, I, it, it just every, everything is coming together on it so far. The timeline's been pretty reasonable i haven't felt too stressed about it i've been working at any available time i have but not overdoing it and like i said i'm 95 percent done and we have just a little bit under a week to go so i think i'm in good shape well and you're going to drive out there i assume just out yeah i've got about a nine hour drive ahead of me and i'm really hoping that whoever wins this drove but I have just sort of mentally prepared myself that if whoever it was, maybe they they flew or whatever, um, that I'll be able to take it back home with me and box it up and ship it out. Yeah, I'm sure you could find some uh, some shipping supplies in uh, in New York too, yeah. and just <laughs> send it from there. Um, but that makes sense. You have if you take it home, then you have your full capabilities to mm-hmm. create it. And how fragile do you think it is? Um, it doesn't have neon and all that. Right. It doesn't have neon. That being said, it does have, I made two of these signs and each one has 34 incandescent light bulbs. So okay. it's a pretty power hungry sign. I'm not going to lie. I did look into using LED bulbs. Uh, Wesley did use some LED light bulbs. I believe he did uh, LED light bulbs on his original sign. But at the, the viewing distance, which is very a very important thing to consider whenever you're working on a sign, uh, the viewing distance for his sign was far enough away where you really wouldn't be able to tell much of a difference between an LED bulb and an incandescent. But because my sign is being viewed, you know, within touching distance, I could not comfortably decide to use a an, a neon bulb because it just didn't have the right look. And I think that's just sort of the the artistic training that I have. Uh, <laughs> Just, I really wanted the look to be right, that vintage effect. Yeah, and that's incredible attention to detail that I've, you know, I've seen in everything you've shared. 
<laughs> uh, as far as uh, other other uh, characteristics of the fragility of the sign is um, it is mainly construction constructed out of MDF. So a lot of signs that I do are made out of HDU, which is a far superior material to make signs out of, but it's surface impact resistance and edge retention is not quite as good as MDF. And I thought this being up close, people might bump into it. It might, you know, somebody might accidentally drop it a little bit. I wanted to use a bit of a more robust material, even though it was a bit more of a challenge to work with. I did make a sign previously that was kind of similar to this uh, Tennessee State Theater sign. I made a recre recreation of that uh, a couple years back. And I learned a lot from working on that sign, working with MDF with the amount of detail that I am trying to attain with this sign. And one specific thing I learned may be worth mentioning here, since it was a problem-solving thing I adjusted in the new sign. On the, the original Tennessee theater sign I made, the walls were about three-sixteenths of an inch thick. And the MDF I, I was using was not the most robust. So if you put much force laterally on those walls, the glue holding the fibers together wanted to give way. And that's something I identified, sort of tried to remedy on the Tennessee State Theater sign. And on this one, my adjustment was the very thin vertical edges are actually tapered. So the top of the, the shape is about a quarter of an inch thick this time, but it tapers out to about uh, three eighths. So that extra material just allows a little extra rigidity between the fibers to avoid having a wall collapse. And I think that detail, you, you can barely notice the taper if you're looking at the side profile of the sign. And I think it just gave it some extra strength that it needed. Oh, that is, that's really cool. I do try to like to explore this and figure out like where people discovered the online maker community and sharing their work in that way. So you also share some stuff on YouTube, but maybe not uh, super prolifically like uh, some people, but uh, you do have a bunch of videos on there. Um, what, can, what kind of gave you the idea to start sharing your work that way? The first uh, maker-centric video I did post was a project that I did whenever the first COVID shutdown happened. I was always telling myself I wanted to do videos and I had the ideas for it. I just didn't have the time. And once that shutdown happened, I had the time. So I, I got some materials before everything really shut down and I made a Siri activated water wall mounted water fountain. It was a pretty cool wow. project. I really, I really liked how that turned out. Um, I, I saw some similar things going on Wayfair after I'd finished the project. They're going for like, you know, four or $5,000. And they're very similar visually to the project that I made before I'd even seen those products on Wayfair. Um, but what I wanted to do with those first few videos was to get my feet wet, to just start doing it as um, getting some tips after listening to Bob Claggett on the Making It podcast. They just said, you just, you just got to start doing it. So 
with that in mind, I just use my iPhone, use the, the, the microphone on my phone to, to make the first video. And it was, it was a little awkward at first. Uh, if, if you watch that first video, I feel very like kind of shy talking quietly to the camera. Um, and I feel like I opened up more in the later videos, but just, just starting doing the videos was great advice because there's, there's no better way to come across the problems that you need to solve in your methodology for making videos. But I really wanted to create a foundation of videos that would be available for whenever I really decide to focus on creating more videos. So there's already videos there. People think, oh, okay, he's already made videos, he's going to make more. Uh, I think that was just a solid foundation to start off of, especially because whenever I did those initial videos in my first shop, I knew it wouldn't be too long before I needed to move to a new shop. And... Uh, I know I, ha I still haven't posted any full comprehensive photos or videos about my new shop, but it is it's it's going to win the coolest shop uh, contest, I think, in my opinion. It's a 125 year old brick carriage house, two stories, and it's um, 1800 square feet. So I've got plenty of space to work out of. I'm, I'm pretty excited about this new shop I'm constructing at the moment. I say constructing, I'm putting in all electrical, framing up some walls, putting in an office, that kind of thing. But the, the building itself is just gorgeous. Oh, and you're in there right now, I assume. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. In the background, this is, this is going to be my office. You can see I started framing the walls up. So you said, you know, Bob Claudia kind of gave you, you know, the whatever uh, incentive there to just get started. So you obviously had found those guys um, prior to that. Um, when did, when did you start watching or, you know, finding other makers, creative people on the internet? I think my first interaction with the make community in an online sense was through the, uh, the website Instructables. Okay. Um, you know, that cute little yellow robot. And there were so many cool projects. I, I that was, or I also developed some of my understanding of electronics. I got uh, a spark fun electronics kit with an old Arduino, um, some other kits with just an understanding of core electrical components and what they do and all that. And that was enlightening. I enjoyed that a lot. And I, I think over time I'm going to be getting more into that again and sort of increasing the complexity of some of the signs that I work on. But beyond Inventables, there really weren't too many, or Instructables, rather. I can't even remember. I always get those two mixed up, uh, Inventables and Instructables. Um, I can't think of the first maker individual that I came across online. One of the earliest definitely would have been Bob from I Like to Make Stuff. And uh, I've been a longtime follower of the videos and content they've created there. But... Uh, from 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 Bob, I found Jimmy Dresta and David Picciuto and others like him. And about the same time as I started posting videos on YouTube, I really started investing more in the maker community and trying to be a contributor rather than just a consumer. And that has made a big difference, just a mindset shift. I, I thoroughly enjoy the maker community. I've made lots of great connections, great friends. Um, I've learned a lot. It's going to be the best way that I can recommend somebody can dive into new endeavors and sort of niches that they want to learn more about. Go find a maker. 
there are plenty of people out there who are more than willing to share what they what they know and help you learn new stuff. Yeah, one hundred percent. That's uh, you know that's what I always tell everybody. That's what makes people makers is the willingness to share information. They want everybody to be able to, you know, build the things that they see in their imagination. You know, and do whatever, explore, you know, whatever techniques or, you know what disciplines that they're interested in. And uh, so it sounds like, so you got that, you know, you figured that out pretty early and you're like, I also want to be part of this sharing what I know. Yes, absolutely. Even in college, um, as a freshman, you know, I, I go into the graphic design department. They have their own tools and equipment there that they have. And I wanted to, one of the first things once I got into the department was I wanted to understand the tools they have available, how to use them, how to do things that other people aren't doing with those tools and finding creative ways to just st- sort of set my work apart from the rest. And from that, I, be- I gained a reputation that anybody could come to me if they had a question about a unique thing they wanted to try and do. I even had seniors coming to me asking how to do this specific task on the printers. It even got to the point where... Uh, teachers and staff and graduate assistants would if, if somebody came to them with a question they weren't sure they would send them my way uh, i was able to help the college set up the first laser cutter in the graphic design department and i brought in my 3d printer and joe deganji he was one of the the, t- the instructors there he taught a sculpting class and i brought in my printer to show um he sort of expressed how being able to think in a 3D space, whenever you're doing sculpting, can be beneficial in modern design trades because you can use that spatial awareness and spatial thinking to work in 3D on the computer and create things using a 3D printer or a CNC machine. And I think being able to have that understanding um, helped me develop good relationships with the staff and sort of used them as a springboard for ideas and they were very interested in engaging with me on ideas and creating unique projects so much so that by my senior year while a lot of my peers other graphic design and studio art uh, students they were displaying their work as printouts of logos someone as far as doing iron-on graphics for logos that they designed printouts of websites business cards very much relevant to graphic design as as a trade um but my my portfolio show my senior year was a wall entirely of signs that i had constructed that i had designed and constructed and it was one of the more unique shows they had had in quite a while and they gave me the prime spot at the top of the stairs whenever you enter into the apartment and i thought that was very reaffirming to see that while my work may have been very different from the peers who were working around me, it was still well done and valuable to, to the department. I, I found that sense rewarding and it really made me want to push myself even further. What made you decide or what, you know, inspired you to put your, you know, your work in your portfolio into that format? making signs well i i have a in my opinion 
I can't tell anybody else things, but I feel I have a pretty good spatial imagination. So whenever I think about a project, I, I, so if, if you work on a project in Photoshop, you have all sorts of features and presets and dials, like I mentioned. You can add a drop shadow, you can add an outer glow, but whenever I am thinking about a logo or a sign I want to make, I want to make those effects, but in real life. I want to make those those faux effects real. Um, so if I if if you want to add a gradient to a background in a graphic, you just pick one color, pick your other color, and you fade it. Well, in real life, you have to either mix your paints really well, or you construct it in such a way where the light hits it and causes a shadow, and that's where you get your color separation. So there's definitely a difference in thinking in constructing your 3D objects and then designing them on the 2D screen. Uh, but that's something I think I have a knack for. And I decided to develop that further rather than trying to cram my ideas to fit in the, 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 the normal types of work that other people were doing. I, I didn't try to confine my creativity in that sense to become normal. I tried to fully flesh out what I thought I was good at. And so far, I think I've been doing a pretty good job of that. And it's, it's the the clients who have been coming to me have been seeing my work and have been enjoying it. Uh, it's allowed me to further express myself that way. So I think I'm on a good track to have a very nice portfolio of work before too long. You remember how you came up with this idea originally, like where you first brought like a design into the physical world the first sign i made um let's see so before my current logo which is for lack of a better term an oval i had a more boxy shaped logo and that was the first sign i had made with any degree of complexity this was before I had access to any sort of fabrication equipment. So this sign was constructed primarily out of foam core and paper, but I did a lot of things in a dimensional nature that you really wouldn't believe it was made out of foam core and paper if you saw it. I don't have that original sign anymore, but I do have a 3D printed scale model. Um, but I tried to express different design concepts in that sign. Uh, one concept I mentioned earlier was the concept of gestalt, um, which you, it, the simplest way to define that is you have a bunch of independent elements, but they come together to form something that is more than the individual parts. So to express that in the sign, I had a bunch of individual uh, pieces of paper layered and gapped in such a way where it created this unique slope and a triangular element in the side of the sign and just trying to express concepts visually and spatially. And that first sign presented me with a lot of challenges, but it was a thrill to get to that end result, hang it up on the wall and see, wow, okay, this is actually something that I can do. I can have an idea and flesh it out with enough focus and work to put in. Uh, so from that first sign, I wanted to have a way to sort of call back to what brought me into graphic design in the first place, which was photography. So one of my second signs was a Viewmaster reel. 
So, you know, those little Viewmaster toys, you hold up to the light, you click the little orange lever and it shuffles photos. Well, I made a sign that had housed a motor and I made a two foot disc with photos that I had taken, one for landscape and one for portraiture. And the motor spun the disc and there was a little protrusion on the backside of the sign that illuminated the picture that was in the proper orientation. So they were actual transparencies that I printed on the art department's printer there. So it's just increasing the amount of complexity, the amount of detail, using materials in a unique way. That's, those are undertone characteristics for a lot of the work that I try to do. Yeah, it's very impressive and definitely, uh, you know, fits the theme of this show uh, 100%. So you're just always trying to, you know, figure out what materials, what techniques are going to help you express like whatever idea you have, you know, in the physical world. Yeah, lots of challenges come up, but it's it's always a thrill to be able to figure out coming up with that aha moment is uh, like a nice little adrenaline rush. Can you think of any other uh, creators who are bridging you know graphic design into the physical world? Uh, yes, I think there are quite a few uh, makers out there who are creating very nice work, uh, bridging the gap between an art- artistic awareness and skilled fabrication techniques. Uh, one that immediately jumps to mind is Sage Seinko. He does some very nice work uh, on Instagram, and I think his signs are gorgeous. He has a good design sense. Even his feed is well curated. Uh, one other person who I think does a good job is the House of Timber. She does a lot of scroll work signs, and her art is just phenomenal. She uses a lot of woods, and uh, she's very skillful with getting high quality results using spray paints that, that that's a skill in of itself uh, and i think she uses a lot of rust-oleum paints and she she posted a uh class i think you could download a while back or so like some training material showing her technique and everything and i didn't have a chance to download that but it seemed very beneficial to get results learned to hers um, aside from that Adrian, who uh, a lot of us may know, Hickory Homestead Creations, she does a lot of unique signs as well. Me and her have had some conversations in the past, and I think she does a nice job of incorporating unique things that most people might not think to incorporate into different signs. One item being, I remember a sign she did a while back, uh, she had a, I'm not sure what the material was, but it was a diffusion layer and it had fairy lights on the inside and it made a unique lighting effect, which I had an appreciation for since I like to incorporate lighting into a lot of my signs. And I think she did a good job with that. And I think she has a good mindset for doing unique signs. That's great. I know Adrian, I think I've seen some stuff from House of Timber before. Sage Sanko, I'm not sure. I'll definitely check all these out and, uh, you know, share links. uh, So listeners can check them out too. That's a, I will mention one other sign creator and to call this guy a sign maker, I think is a bit of a disservice because the work that this company does, the uh, imagination corporation, they're based in Canada. I believe their work in my opinion is hands down some of the best in the world. Their work gets shipped all over the place. They use a lot of HDU, which is a gold standard sign material I mentioned earlier. And it's, it's dimensionally carved on CNCs and very artistically painted. Nothing but respect for the work that comes out of there. The amount of imagination and inspiration is just 
it's awe inspiring. They are uh, a huge inspiration to me. Wow. Yeah. Looking at some of the stuff, I think you've seen some of this before too. So um, I'm sure people have shared these things. They're all <laughs> great artists. Yeah. Dan Swayze is a, a different beast altogether. Yeah. Yeah. These are, these things are totally amazing. Besides uh, sharing links to all, all the other sign makers who are really great. Uh, where can people uh, find out what you're working on? Well, I post a lot more content on Instagram these days, uh, but I'm also available on Facebook and YouTube, all under the name of Crabtree Creative. So feel free to look me up on there, send me a message, and if you ever want to know about a certain effect or if you have a question about something, do not hesitate to ask. I would be more than happy to help out. Awesome. Uh, I want to take a second to thank the patrons over at Patreon who helped uh, make this show happen. Uh, Top tier patron, of course, uh, Matt from Artigiano Serio. Uh, he uh, kind of inspired me to go to the westernmost bookstore in the United States uh, when I was on a work trip today to or last week to Hawaii. So uh, appreciate him uh, encouraging me to do that because um, probably not going to get a chance to do it again. Uh, we also have uh, Ed Johns, Brian Callahan, and Sean Beckner who are always uh, great supporters. Uh, and want to thank everyone who supports the show at patreon.com slash making problems to solve. Uh, if you can't support the show on Patreon, you can always share the show with a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can follow the show on Instagram at making problems to solve. And you can see what I'm working on on Instagram at Dave Bauer Art. Uh, thanks a lot for talking to me, Joe. Yeah, no problem. I'm more than happy to share what I know. <laughs>